production of KMmedia.pro. Welcome back to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So come on over into our world. I know you'll like it, because on today's show... Welcome to Positive Talk Radio for a Friday at noon. It is the weekend. Coming up is the um, Labor Day weekend, and I hope everybody's going to be safe. Have a wonderful time and go out and enjoy the great Pacific Northwest. We've got a great show for you today. We've got a wonderful man who has been a journalist and he's a vice president of marketing at a college down in Oregon and he's an actor and he does, has done a lot of stuff over time and we're going to get into all of that in just a second or two. But first of all, Nathan, how are you? Doing well, Kevin, and I'll check with you in just a bit. We're working on getting your guest on the air here. Okay, sounds good. I will tell people exactly who we're going to be talking to today. His name is Scott Bernard Nelson. He is a journalist of of 20 years or so. He was embedded with the Marines in the Iraq War. No, not that one. The original one, which happened in 1991. I believe, and uh, along with half million U.S. soldiers that were protecting Kuwait from um, Saddam Hussein, and went to, uh, and he was embedded with the Marines and, and filed stories on behalf of his paper there. He also was <clears throat> involved in a member of the media that covered 9/11, which not only is my birthday, by the way. Uh, but in 9-11-2001, of course, we had the Twin Towers go down and the and the major uh, terrorist attack. And he covered the financial segment as well as the um, as well as the, the, the overall thing that happened then. Um, he also worked with uh, the uh, Boston Globe's Pulitzer Prize winning coverage of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, which spawned the movie Spotlight. And. Um, He's also an actor, and he he is uh, currently the vice president for strategic communications and the marketing officer for Linfield University, which is down in Oregon. In an in which is an interesting story all by itself. Scott, welcome to the show. How are you? I think you're muted at the moment. Um, um, let's see if we can see, see. <laughs> yeah we got it we've got it okay let's this, try again here this is one of those things that you have when you're doing um live radio that sometimes happens to us from time to time let's try and, now scott can you hear us okay i can hear you can you hear me yeah yes how are you scott hi kevin how are you i apologize for the technical difficulties uh, not your fault, not your problem. It just is one of those things that just happens from time to time. Let me bring yeah, Nathan. Yeah, let me bring Nathan back on. I wanted to ask him about because uh, of what I always like to do, since especially since it's going to be a long weekend for everybody. Mm-hmm. What's the weather going to be like, sir? Weather like? Oh well, we're going to have a sunny day on Saturday, so it's kind of a weekend where if you like rain or you like sun, you got. Pick your day, because 
Saturday will be sunny, high near 81. And then Sunday, well, we're going to have scattered showers and high right around 70 degrees. So、uh, just plan your weekend accordingly. Saturday for sun, Sunday for rain. Kind of ironic because、yeah. sun is, you know, Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, how about Monday? Monday, let's take a look. Oh, yeah, that's right. Labor Day weekend.、Uh, A little bit better chance of less showers on Labor Day, but still kind of scattered, just less scattered. Well, I'm glad you're talking in a positive way. That's, that's really cool.、Um, so, in any event,、um, I, got, I wanted to ask you, Nathan, you're a younger guy.、Um, did you know that there were two Iraq wars? There were two? Oh,、um, I knew of one, but not the second. Well, actually, the first one was、uh, Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. Which happened in, I believe, 91. And、uh, Scott was embedded, and, and we'll have him explain what embedded means when he was with the Marines. And then he also、yeah. spent、uh, time in New York City on my birthday, which is 9 11. And- wow.、Uh, happy to talk about it,、uh, Kevin, but I'm going to,、uh, as much as I don't want to do this, I'm going to start by contradicting you. I was actually in Iraq the second time. Uh, oh, I, I was、uh, guessed, I guessed wrong. No, that's, that's、uh, totally fine.、Um, the, during the first desert storm, I actually was, I think, a college student. So、um, uh, by 2003, which was Desert Shield, the second time、uh, I was working for the Boston Globe, we were owned by the New York Times. At the time, so the、uh, New York Times had a contract with CNN. So I ended up working for the New York Times and CNN and CNN International in Iraq、uh, during the 2003 invasion. And embedding was a new thing they tried for that, the Department of Defense tried. So my take on this, now the official line might have been different, was that. A lot of the military leaders by the early 2000s were people who had come of age right after Vietnam or were certainly affected by the Vietnam experience. And there was certainly a pretty strong belief in the military leadership that、um, American journalists telling stories out of Vietnam did not help their military objectives any. So they were trying to come up with what are, what are alternatives. To coverage that maybe don't have journalists running around everywhere on the battlefield in the same ways and telling all those same stories. So it became a, this sort of question of how they do it. And the Department of Defense rolled out its embedding program, where this, this was a weird, for those of you who remember it, this was a weird invasion moment, right? The whole world knew the United States was going to invade Iraq and remove Saddam Hussein from power. Um, who, by the way, is a, was a bad person、um, by any measure.、Um, and all the people I talked to in Iraq you know, certainly verified that. But whether or not the war was wise in the end will be a question for historians later. But in any case, the world, everybody knew there was a big pregnant pause. And they used that opportunity to announce for every unit that was planned to be over there, they got X number of reporter spots. They got embedded within each of those units, and you would travel with them, live with them, see the war, the invasion from their perspective.、Um, I was、um, a writer at the Boston Globe at the time, and we ended up with 15 embedded slots that we were given.、Um, and then 
Um, oh, no, I take that back. We were given five embedded slots, and we had 15 people total who we were going to send. So we ended up taking the embedded spots that the Department of Defense offered and then sending 10 more people anyway that just came in through other countries. And so I'm not sure the Department of Defense got what it wanted out of that program. We sent, you know, everybody anyway. But we certainly took their spots as well. Um, and because I didn't speak Arabic or Farsi uh, or have a whole lot of experience in that part of the world, um, I got one of the embedded slots. And so um, I had been one of the first to raise my hand in the Boston Globe newsroom at the time. So I ended up getting first choice of the units that they offered us. And I didn't really know how this invasion was going to happen, of course. Nobody did. But I figured I did not want to sit in reserves somewhere. Um, and so, like, one of our opportunities was with um, Central Command in uh, Qatar, or Qatar. Uh, one of them was with an Army Reserve unit out of Saudi Arabia. I didn't want those. Um, I, if I was going to do this, I wanted to be a journalist and do this, be a true war correspondent. So I chose Marine Corps. Uh, and I had no idea which Marine unit it was. Um, I just figured there was a, a high likelihood that whoever was embedded with the Marines would see whatever was going to happen in the invasion, and that turned out to be true. Uh, I was embedded with the 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines. Um, we, I met with them in Kuwait, lived with them in Kuwait, just on this side, this side, the Kuwait side of the border, uh, at a forward operating base for a while. Um, went over the border with them during the invasion and stayed with them all the way through Baghdad. Uh, I was still with them the day of Firdo Square. A lot of people remember when the, the famous day when the statue was pulled down of Saddam Hussein in Firdo Square in Baghdad. I was not in the square, but I was in Baghdad that day with the Marines. Um, so everything happened in, in pretty quick succession, real time, over a couple of months. Um, and I'm still friends with many of those Marines. I still know many of them. We went through something together that um, others in our lives won't ever really be able to understand fully. So, um, you know, I remain close with many of them, and I have a lot of respect for them. It was certainly an intense time in, in my life. Boy, I, I, and I'll tell you, my, my son, who's in the Air Force, was stationed for a little while in Kuwait, and um, there's an Air Force base there. And he was telling me that if, when you're in the Air Force, and you can verify this, when you're in the Air Force, you get a cabin. You get a, a something with air conditioning that's kind of nice. When you're with the Marines, you get a tent. <laughs> Am I correct in that? Well, uh, what I would say is when we were in Kuwait, we had a tent. As soon as we went over... <laughs> The border into Iraq, um, that we, it, it sounds melodramatic to say this, but every time that the convoy that I was with, the group I was with, stopped, you dug a grave. That's what you did. And you slept in a hole in the ground. Um, and there was no tent. There was no anything except your sleeping pad and your sleeping bag. Um, and so that was true for weeks. Um, it wasn't until... Uh, after Baghdad, actually, that they re reacquired bases and slept under roofs. So the time I, during the first three weeks of the invasion, um, I literally just dug a 
grave, dug a hole every night, every time we stopped and slept in that. So uh, I guess we didn't even have tents in, in that regard. <laughs> well, and he also tells me that there are, in the desert, there are, and first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you did for the country uh, and, and to get the word out about what was actually going on there and, uh, and stuff. But, but digging a hole in the desert and going to sleep, there are all kinds of bugs and things. And, and my son was telling me about this particular spider that is, can like eat cats and all this kind of stuff that are in the desert on the ground. And at what point did you say, now, why did I volunteer for this? <laughs> Well, I had um, fairly small children at the time. Um, so when I left, my son, who is now a senior in college, was nine months old. Um, so it was a real gut check moment. Um, how important is this? Um, so actually taking the escalator up at, at Logan Airport in Boston and seeing my wife and children disappear below me as I left was a real gut check moment. And I had to ask why I'm doing this. Um, and then the actual moment, the, the night that the invasion happened, it became real in a way that even though I thought I was prepared for, I didn't truly expect until it happened. And so I would say that was a second, that, that sort of first 24 hours of the invasion, um, that was the other moment. But I, frankly, after that, once we had been through that, I just decided whatever risk you took you already made the decision it doesn't it doesn't do you any good to worry about your safety now that you're here so i you know they we were really worried about driving over um unexploded devices right and the in the roads and the roadside bombs and that kind of thing i just stopped worrying about it i threw the sandbags out that we were supposed to have our feet on because they were uncomfortable uh, most of the time I rode without body armor because it was heavy and bulky and hard to move around and uncomfortable. And I just stopped worrying about it. And I, I think a lot of the Marines operate that way too. Once you're sort of through that moment of deep, deep fear, you just can't live in that space. It's not healthy. So you just have to adjust. And there were occasional moments, um, like when we were laying in holes at night, sometimes um, you would have, uh, you know, you see in movies and people who are in the military will know you, you set up trip flares, right? If, so to know if anybody's getting too close to your, so we'd essentially circle all the Humvees up like the wild west wagons They'd circle all the Humvees up. We dig holes to lay in and then they have trip, trip flares out around. So if anybody gets too close and, um, a lot of people were dying, um, around us and, uh, sometimes, uh, women would come out from the local, communities and to retreat bodies and you'd hear them sort of wailing and crying and um occasionally a trip flare would go up and so you'd be laying there in your hole at night and the whole world is shimmering and glowing from these trip flares and you hear um people wailing and crying across the desert toward you uh and every once in a while you'll get a call about um they would because they were very worried about uh, chemical weapons of course which it turns out Saddam either didn't have or we didn't find, but at the time we were very, very concerned about them. Um, and so we all had gas masks at all times. And every once in a while, um, like a little Datsun truck would come in and they would shoot, they would try to shoot mortars out of the back of it just at the American bases and they would try to drive the Datsun pickup away again. 
So every time they did that, we would all put our gas masks on and lay there in the dark and you're sweating. You can't breathe very well. The night is shimmering from the trip flare. Those were some surreal moments for sure. Um, you know, knowing, wondering if I would see my daughter grow up and, you know, there were some real moments there for sure. Um, but it is important. Uh, it matters that people know what's happening uh, in the world. Journalism matters. Um, and I felt that it was important. So, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more because I am a, a product of the 60s and the Vietnam experience. And I remember um, the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And he would be there and he would talk about uh, the, the war and how it was going. And they had in, journalists that would talk about it and stuff. So we it was the first war, as I, re, I believe, that media played a real, imp, had a real impact on what was going on on the ground in Vietnam. Yeah. And the wars since then, you know, and I'm, I, in 2003, when this invasion happened, I didn't believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and, and all of that. But I'll leave that to history to decide, because it turned out to be not a very good experience for us and for them. And so how many people right. lost their lives in total? But I, I, I want to get past that and ask you more about what's it like being a journalist and seeing some of the things that are going to be written about for a hundred years in our society and seeing them firsthand, that must be, a, have been a very interesting experience. It was. And, and I, and first of all, I want to say how fortunate I was to have been given the opportunity to be involved in some of them. Right. Um, because a lot of us choose to become journalists, to become storytellers, to work, in some communications-related field, um, and not everybody gets the opportunity to go the places that I had or be a part of some of those stories. So I feel very thankful for that, um, that that was part of my experience. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is important. It does feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, um, that the work you do matters. So... Um, you know, I, I got to be at a Winter Olympic Games uh, in Salt Lake City um, where I was following around Mitt Romney because he was about to run for governor of Massachusetts. And so he was the CEO of the Winter Olympic Games. And so I got to attend the Winter Olympics and uh, annoy the heck out of Mitt Romney, which was fun for me, maybe not so much fun for him. Um, and uh, I got to be in New York for three months uh, right after 9-11 because I covered the financial district in Manhattan. Um, th that was, that was part of my beat at the time. I knew people in all of those offices. I knew people who were in the towers. Uh, I actually had on my desk in Boston an invitation to be at a mutual fund breakfast at windows on the world restaurant at the top of one of the towers. And everyone at that breakfast ended up dying. I, I never seriously entertained the idea of going, but I had an invitation to it. So that was my world was, um, part of that. And I, I knew people who died in the towers. Um, and so the opportunity, it, it, I really think it was a gift that I had something I could do in that moment at a time when I think most of us felt um, helpless, that some huge world wheel was turning 
and grinding and terrible things were happening and nobody knew what to do. And I, at least I had a job to do. I had something I could do about it and do to the best of my ability, tell that story and tell their stories and talk to people and get interviews. And um, it felt important and it still feels important. And I'm thankful that I had that opportunity truly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to get your opinion uh, because in in the last um, I don't know six or seven years, there's been this thing about the mainstream media and that they are telling lies and uh, all of the stuff that they yeah. are blaming on, like the mainstream media. I'd like your take on that, just from the standpoint of I know you worked with a lot of uh, journalists and with a lot of news organizations and. Yeah. None of that is true, is it? You guys were all there to do the very best job and to get the best stories out that were real, honest, and true. Am I wrong in any yeah, of that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, journalists aren't perfect, and I would never claim that they are. Uh, I was never perfect. I did the best I could, but I made mistakes at times, um, and then we tried to correct those mistakes. So you know, I'll be the first to say that humans were not perfect, but... Our job was to get original sourcing on facts, to be where things were happening, to find documents, to talk to people, get actual stories, and to the best of our ability, tell those stories and tell important stories. Um, that in a world where increasingly social media replaces media, we don't have very many people doing that anymore. You have a lot of people who sit at a computer and have opinions. And, and then you have algorithms that make sure that everybody sees more of what they react to, whether or not it's true or has any quality or basis at all. So you have algorithms driving misinformation at us constantly. And if, you know, social science research is pretty clear. If you see misinformation enough, you start to believe it, right? We all know this. Um, so, you know, we're in a very dangerous place right now, I think, where nobody knows what to believe. Nobody knows who to believe. And the narrative that you can't trust mainstream media is not helpful, right? It makes us a less well-informed society. It drives us apart. People do it for their own purposes, for their own gain, but it's not helpful for us as a society. It's not helpful for us as a people. And it's not true, right? Again, journalists aren't perfect, but there was no master plan to subvert democracy, right? There are people who are just doing their best to, t to attempt to tell stories um, and get information and get original information and be at the city council meeting and be at the invasion of Iraq and be where things are happening and talk to people. And they we were really trying to do that. And, you know, keyboard jockeys sitting at home, spinning their opinions out, it's not the same thing. And we're in a much more dangerous world as a result. It's interesting that um, a lot of these guys are interested in clicks. Uh, the number of clicks you get, the number of dollars that you can generate, the number of ads that you yeah. can add, and that kind of stuff. So in some cases, they are not being totally genuine or honest because being more sensational can drive more clicks. Um, yeah. And they can make more money. And, and that I'm hopeful that uh, we will get past that. Uh, what do you, what do you think? What do you think we can do to get past that? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question because even 
fairly well-respected journalism organizations have resorted to clickbait uh, more and more in, on their websites in particular uh, in the last 20 years. Um, you know, the, here's the problem. It hasn't worked. Um, driving incre- advertising, digital advertising as a model to support real journalism, which is kind of expensive, it just doesn't work. And so clickbait has backfired. It actually undermines the public's perception of the good journalism you can do. And then you don't really make much money anyway, right? It's the old debate about trading um, dimes for dollars, except it didn't even turn out to be dimes. It turned out to be pennies for dollars. And um, for that, you gave up your credibility and ended up doing clickbait. So I am not a fan of organizations that have done that, um, and including many of the ones I worked for. But... You know, I think that I agree with you that I'm an optimist. We will find a way through this. Um, there are people who care about true information and care about news. Uh, I don't know what percentage of the population that is, but there are people who do care. And so here's what I do. Um, I pay for news happily. I subscribe. I subscribe. No, I subscribe digitally. I don't read print papers anymore, but... I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I subscribe to the New York Times. I subscribe to the Washington Post. I subscribe to the Oregonian, which is my regional paper. And I subscribe to the News Register in McMinnville. Uh, And I subscribe also to the Portland Business Journal. Um, I pay all those news organizations and I read their apps. And I believe I'm getting a better quality of news because of that. That I'm organizations that I'm paying for are giving me better news and I can then compare and contrast. I can compare what the Wall Street Journal ha- coverage is to the Washington Post coverage of issues. And I feel like I'm relatively well-informed. Now, if I was relying just on social media and free TV news, maybe not so much. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the world is. And um, so we can choose to be better news consumers individually. We can become better informed and not just let the algorithms push garbage at us. We can do that, but you have to make an effort and you have to attempt to do it. Now, how we scale that up to a whole society is a, is a better question. I think smarter minds than, than me will have to figure that one out. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think you're pretty smart. But I, I, I agree with you. We need, we, you have to do your research. When somebody says X, I, my first thing out of my mouth is, where did you get that information? Oh, I right. saw it online. It's like, you do realize that you can't believe anything that you see online or any particular sensational thing that you hear about somebody, you can't trust it. So you've got to find a real source or at least a a good, good journalist would have two or three sources to verify each other. Correct. Right. Yeah. I would say media literacy, right? How can we improve media literacy? Um, And, you know, frequently things that I see online I know immediately that those are not true, just the way they're worded. That you can just read that, but clearly a lot of people are not don't have that same level of skepticism, and it works. And so I think we as a culture have to become more media literate. We need to become better at sussing where our information comes from. We need to be better at finding authentic information and fact-checking things. Um, and we probably need to build systems where students learn that at a young age and, and become more media. And media literacy matters. It really does. And increasingly in this age, um, that's going to be more and more important. 
By the way, we are talking with Scott Bernard Nelson. He is the uh, communications chief marketing officer for Linfield University. That's what he does now. That's not what he always did. But in the second half of the program, I'd like to focus on his acting career and also <laughs> his work that he does with uh, uh, Linfield College, which Linfield College or our university actually has a unique story unto itself as well that I would love for us to share with folks because there's a, it has a past. It goes back a long, long way, and uh, and some people were affected by the what happened in the 18th century that, uh, that continues to this day. So um, we're going to continue that with uh, Scott Bernard Nelson. I need to take a quick, quick break real quick. So uh, you're listening to Positive Talk Radio here on KKNW, 1150 AM. Don't you dare go away. This is good stuff. This is a production of K- Hey, PTR loyal listener. First, thanks for being in my dream. And second, I have a new concept in business to share with you. It's called socialpreneurship. So what's that? Well, it's the idea that any company designates all profits beyond expenses to be awarded to a local or international charity or project which is working to achieve good in the world. KM Media is such a company. We believe that it's important for us to give back whenever possible and to make great things happen. So I hope you'll join us in creating this new business model that will positively impact all of us. In the next few weeks, we will lay out the plan and begin our fundraising efforts. So stay tuned for more details right here on Positive Talk Radio. When you want to say more than words communicate... You can with flowers. Your custom boutique floral studio in Bothell, Washington is anaturaldesign.com, connecting you to nature through the language of flowers. Where your people are is where our flowers are beautiful. Your success is our goal. anaturaldesign.com at your fingertips today. Hey, thanks for listening to Positive Talk Radio. Did you know that we're also a media production company? Well, surprise, we are. We can create all kinds of audio, video products to fill any need. Please visit kmmedia.pro backslash our dash store for a complete list of products and services. In addition, do you need a great voice to add to your own website or any other project? I know that we can add depth and quality to your work. I've been told more times than I can count by many professionals in the business that my voice adds to the quality of the presentation. So let me create something for you. Please contact me at Kevin at KMmedia.pro and let's create something great. And welcome back to Positive Talk Radio right here on KKNW. By the way, just so you know, at 3 o'clock, we also do a show on Kixie, which is 8.80 a.m. And I invite you to go there at 3 o'clock. If you're a baby boomer, we've got a brand new publication that is out. Um, and Gramps Jeffries, not his real name, is going to be here. And we're going to talk about uh, the publication. And we're involved with it. And it's uh, it's for us older folks that that have got more experience than some of our younger brethren. But for this hour, we're talking with Scott Bernard Nelson. He is the communications chief and marketing officer for Linfield University. And welcome back, sir. How are you? Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. It's a good Friday. 
for a long weekend. Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, Linfield University has got a very unique story that goes back a long time. Can you share that? Sure. I'll give you the short version. Um, uh, Otherwise, we'll take the rest of our time here. But, uh, you know, the short version is Linfield is one of the oldest universities on the West Coast. Um, It dates back to even before Oregon was a state. Um, And it was Baptist College at McMinnville originally. So Baptists out in what was then wilderness in the mid-1800s wanted a Baptist school. And they founded it in a very small place here in Western Oregon. And these days, it's a very different place. In in the early 1920s, we became Linfield College instead of McMinnville College, Baptist College of McMinnville. Um, after a donation of quite a bit of land, uh, actually in the Spokane area and elsewhere, but from um, the widow of a preacher who had died before his, his widow moved to McMinnville and wanted to support the university and donated her land in Spokane uh, and eastern Washington. And the sale of that allowed Linfield to really get uh, grow and get financial footing, and we became Linfield College, uh, named after the preacher, uh, in the early 1920s. Fast forward a century to 2020, and right as the pandemic was starting to happen, in the case, in, in an example of really terrible timing, uh, we had prepared for 18 months to go from Linfield College to Linfield University. We added um, a couple of new schools in that we have a school of nursing, a school of business, and a college of arts and sciences, which kind of encompasses everything else. We added graduate programs. We opened a second campus in Portland. Uh, we did all that right as the pandemic hit. Uh, and so we, we rebuilt our website. We rebranded, and nobody wanted to hear anything about it, right, in the summer of 2020. So, uh, you know, we couldn't have timed that worse. But. Fast forward three years, we are Linfield University. We do have graduate programs. We have both campuses going strong. Uh, and it's really, I, I feel very, very fortunate to be able to work in this bubble where students are finding their futures, where we can make such a difference in people's lives. So half of our incoming class of freshmen each of the last two years are first generation. Um, let me tell you why that's so important. Every time the first person in a family gets a college degree, it changes the entire family's economic, socioeconomic trajectory. Um, and, you know, we truly are at a school like this changing lives and changing the world. And it feels great to be a part of that and having an opportunity to be a part of that. Right before I came on the air with you, Kevin, I met with one of my student mentees. So even though I'm a vice president here, I make a point every year to be a mentor for a handful of students um, because if you're at a college and you're not actually directly trying to help students, then you're probably in the wrong place. So uh, I met one of my uh, mentees um, actually from the Seattle area, a great, great freshman kid we have. Um, And uh, he was talking to me about the things he wants to do in his life and how excited he is. And he's playing soccer here and um, first game is tonight. And, I love the energy. I love the um, the optimism of a college campus. And I feel very fortunate to be in a place 
where we really are changing families, changing communities, changing the lives of these students. And I feel very strongly about it. I felt good about my life in journalism. I feel just as fortunate to have a sort of second chapter of my life in higher education. I feel very good about that, too. And Linfield's a great place to do it. Well, if you look at their website, which is linfield.edu, you will find um, they have uh, pictures of the campus. It's a beautiful campus that you have there. It is. It's really spectacular. Yeah. And, and like I said, we have a second campus in Portland now. Um, and we have our School of Nursing up there because nurses, nursing students are required to have clinical education in hospitals and healthcare settings. McMinnville is too small to have enough spots for them. So we have to really have our nursing students out at all of the hospitals in the Portland area. And so our nursing school is up there. Uh, and I, eventually we're going to have more than nursing in Portland. But our traditional undergraduate system, our residential campus is in McMinnville, about 45 minutes outside of Portland. It's in the heart of Oregon's wine country. Uh, it's beautiful. We're surrounded by the county we're in. Literally, this sounds like an exaggeration. It's not. The county we're in has 300 vineyards or wineries. We are surrounded by Oregon Pinot Noir wine country. It's beautiful. The campus is beautiful. And again, it's one of many reasons I feel very fortunate to be here and be given this opportunity. Well, you do, and what you are the communications and chief marketing officer. What exactly does that mean, and what does what do you do? <laughs> Depends what day you ask me, Kevin. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm the chief marketing officer and associate vice president. So what that means is I have an office of 10 people and we do the website. Thank you for looking at that and reading that URL out. We do the university social media channels. We do the university's uh, magazine, which goes out to 30,000 alumni and friends of the university. Uh, we do graphic design. So we do everything from signs to brochures to, for various departments in the school. We have photography and videography. Um, we have writers and editors. Uh, we do. Uh, we have um, a guy who does advertising and does ad buying, and as are both digital and um, you know terrestrial advertising. So everything from billboards to digital ads. Um, so we have you know everything that falls into the communications and marketing realm for the university uh, is in our office, and I work with ten creative professional people and um i'm happy to go to work most days and spend time with them and i met you at a very unique uh, function that i want to talk about a little <laughs> bit too because in addition to doing all the work that you've done you're also an actor and uh i think probably a director as well um and you can you can correct me if i'm wrong in that but we met because of um um, left coast comedy um, and Jill who is the director of that they have they have meetings where's the screen and some actors get together some screenwriters and some directors and they, they put together shorts comedy shorts that they then put on YouTube and if you go to left coast comedy the YouTube channel you can look at a lot of the work that they've done there and they're working to build something out of the Portland area that's really unique would you like to talk about that for a second Absolutely. No. Um, so first off, I'm a writer, as you know, by trade, not an actor. Uh, but because I wrote a few short films uh, in the last 10 years, I got to know people in the Portland area film community. 
And when my kids went off to college a couple of years ago, I had found myself a little bit more time, more of the empty nest phase, and said yes to a couple of opportunities and ended up in front of the camera almost accidentally. Um, and so this is a brand new phase for me. It's People sometimes ask me, did you always want to be an actor? And my answer is, oh my gosh, no, this never occurred to me before. <laughs> so this is, this is sort of a, it feels like a random side thing in my life, but it has been a great joy and it's a lot of fun. And so left coast comedy is one of those things. Left coast comedy, uh, I think has a lot of potential to be something really important in the future and involves Portland and Seattle people, both actors and writers. So, um, what, Jill did when she created Left Coast Comedy is they spent, during the pandemic, a lot of things, productions weren't getting made, um, production went down, and they just started writing com sketch comedy. Think Portlandia or Saturday Night Live style sketch comedy. So very short, very funny, sometimes very satirical um, comedy. And uh, they ended up writing, I think, 60 episodes 60 sketch comedy episodes before they ever contacted an actor, right? So a writer's group during the pandemic just started writing funny stuff. And then as we started to emerge from the pandemic, they started asking themselves, what do we do with all of these scripts that we have? And so then they started to get local actors involved. And I, so I have two agents. I have one in Seattle and one in Portland now. Um, and I'm with Big Fish Northwest out of Seattle. Uh, and I'm also with talent model management out of Portland. And so this depends which geography, if I get hired for a job, uh, which agent it applies to. But in my Portland agent suggested that I get in touch with the left coast comedy people. And so I wrote Jill and one thing led to another. And now I've been in two of the left coast comedy episodes. They're great fun. The team, they, they, they work hard, they create funny things, but they have a good time while they're doing it. And um, at this point, everybody is volunteer. Um, I, at least, at least they haven't paid me as far as I know. So, uh, I, I think everything is pretty much volunteer at this point, but they're, you know, they have, they're already onto a second season worth of shows. There are 15 or 20 of them already out there. Absolutely go to their, uh, YouTube page, watch them, give them feedback, follow them on social um, I think a lot of Seattle area and Portland area writers and actors are going to do, be doing work with them or already have been doing work with them. And at some point, they hope they can bundle these episodes into packages that will be on Netflix or one of the streaming services and really could become a, an important thing down the road. So find it, follow it, Left Coast Comedy. They're great. And since you've given me a microphone, I'm also going to mention um, – I just appeared in the promo for a, another short film um, called Rat Problem. Um, and they follow that on the socials also. That is a really smart, really funny 80s, um, think Gremlins, 80s creature feature homage that the, this really smart young director is working on. So follow Rat Problem on the socials as well, if you would. And did you have any idea when that's going to be coming out? Is that going to go to some of the film festivals and some of the shorts and that kind of thing? Rat Problem? Yeah. Oh, so so Rat Problem, well, here's what we did. Um, we created, they, they hired me and another actor to um, appear in a promo. And then they, they plan to start shooting the full film in December. And so they're using the promo that we created to 
raise money on Seed and Spark and to get attention um, for the full film that they'll start shooting in December. Um, but we we had a great time two weeks ago. It, the promo uh, debuted at the 99W Drive-In in, or- in just outside Portland. So the whole cast and crew came together and we got to see it on the drive-in before uh, another movie uh, and rolled out the promo and now it's online. Uh, I think they have a couple of pretty big name actors from the 80s for people who are 80s film fans um, who they're talking with to be in the film and they're using the promo to get all that done. So uh, it was fun. I really, I'm really enamored of the team that made that and uh, you know, I encourage anybody listening to go follow Rat Problem also. And you can enjoy me in the promo while you're at it. It's, it's already out. Are you gonna have you been cast for the uh, actual movie yet? Well, so here's here's the thing. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, I don't make it through the promo. <laughs> oh no, you get offed during the promo. Right. But my, my deal with the director was I still want to credit in the final movie. Even if you kill me off in the promo, I want to credit. He, they agreed to that. <laughs> oh, that makes perfect sense. By the way, for those of you who may be of a certain age, I want to explain to you what a drive-in movie theater is. Because <laughs> I don't, the, the very few of them exist anymore. And uh, right. it is a place where you go in your car and you pay your money and there's a screen big screen outside and you go and you park and they have a, a, a speaker that you put in your window or now they they have a and the thing that goes on your antenna if you've got one of those and then you can listen to and watch the movie and you're outside in your own car uh, they they don't do that very much anymore i saw jaws outside and it was a real popcorn oh, so lucky <laughs> uh, that's such a great movie um yeah, and so in, in the entire state of Oregon right now, there are three drive-ins. I don't know how many there are in Washington, but probably not many more. Um, and they're fantastic experiences. When my kids were young, we were in Massachusetts at the time, we, we couldn't take babies to a regular theater, so we would drive them to a drive-in. We'd sit in our car, and the babies would fuss, and nobody cared because we were in the car listening to the, watching the movie. And so we fell in love with drive-ins. And now it's very much of like a nostalgic throwback experience. And so what typically people do is they bring their SUVs and they put pillows and blankets and everything in the back and they open up the back tailgate and window or they bring trucks, their, their truck bed, they fill with, you know, inflatable mattresses and or they bring camping chairs and they sit out all night and drink and their, their drinks and watch behind their cars. It's really a, quite a social experience in a way that regular theater going is not anymore and that watching at home certainly is not. Um, so it becomes a very communal experience and debuting this promo for rat problem, the cast and crew, we stood on the roof of the concession stand and took the mic and took turns talking. And then the other actor and I, we, we put on our coveralls that we wore in the film because we were garbage men who found this nest of mutant rats. And so we walked through the crowd with our coveralls on and people came up and they were all taking pictures with us and talking about eighties horror movies and, it really was a fantastic night. And that's one of the reasons I do. Uh, I, I mean, I work at a university. I have a day job. I don't need to do that to do acting. But it's so great to be around creative people. It's so great to be around creative projects like Left Coast Comedy. Um, and to force myself to think of storytelling in new ways and be in uncomfortable situations, which as an actor, you get put in a lot. 
of uncomfortable situations. And I think that's healthy. It's good for me. It's, it keeps me from calcifying and stagnating where I am. And, uh, you know, I find it to be a lot of fun. And so I, at least as long as they'll keep having me and my two agents keep finding work for me, I'll keep doing some work. Well, I got to believe that. Well, first of all, I got to tell you that you're, you're absolutely right. Because when my son was like 18 months old, and we had him in his little carrier in the back seat. We went and watched yeah. one of the great Christmas movies of all time. Remember Die Hard? Okay. Oh, it wasn't my gosh. Movie. I love Die Hard. <laughs> but it had Christmas music in it in any event. Um, and Absolutely. so we really enjoyed that experience. And and I, I miss them. I w- would love to go back yeah. to them. Um, and I, I wish I knew off the top of my head which drive-ins they have in Washington. But there are three in the state of Oregon. And one is just outside the Portland area in Newburgh. That's the one we were at. There's one in Dallas, Oregon, which is closer to Salem, the state capital. And then there's one in eastern Oregon, I think, in LeGrand. But they're pretty rare, right? The fact that I can name the only ones in the state off the top of my head tells you that they're not very common anymore. And so as a listener, if you have a chance to go to one sometime, just for the throwback experience, take your camping chairs, fill the back of your car with blankets, whatever. It'll be worth it. You'll have a blast. You will. And, and, uh, I, I saw several of them there. We saw going back a long time ago, we saw, um, true grit starring, uh, John Wayne, uh, and, uh, the sterile cuckoo with, uh, Liza Minnelli, um, in, in the you have some so, classics. Those are great. Yeah. Back way back in the sixties. So, um, I'm jealous. You know. I'm still, I'm still getting over my jealousy of you seeing jaws in a drive-in. Oh my gosh. I oh. love that movie. The, the, the Robert Shaw monologue on the boat uh, about the USS Indianapolis is honestly one of the great monologues in Hollywood history. Um, I know people tend to think of Jaws as sort of summer um, popcorn fair, blockbuster fair, but that was a fantastic movie. Uh, and uh, I'm very jealous that you got to see it in the drive-in. That, that's living right, my friend. And I'll tell you that that particular movie. Just to digress for just a second, they had this this um, mechanical fish that they were going to use, but because they were having trouble with it for a good portion of the film, they had to they had to use um, Steven Steven Spielberg used our imagination against us uh, by by creating the look and the feel of the camera as it moved in and it would take it, it was I, I after i saw that movie i had trouble going into a swimming pool for a while and i knew oh my God. I knew intellectually yeah. go ahead yeah so so i one of the things i did uh at different points in my life was a lot of open water swimming i did two iron man triathlons uh and i swam alcatraz twice and i'll tell you there to this day i'm 52 years old to this day I can't swim in open water without hearing the Jaws theme in my head. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I know. Well, you know, we're going to have to have you back to talk about your triathlete days and, and your, <laughs> because you did some, um, um, you've done a lot of stuff. You're a mountain climber as well. And so. Oh, I love, I, hey, we can do a show just about rock climbing if you want. Climber. I love we'll rock climbing. Yes. Well, you you're a brave man as far as I'm anytime. concerned. <laughs> and you're also a whiskey reviewer. So that's got to be fun as well. Yeah, that is fun. Uh, so uh, here's my rule. Uh, you know, I like my day job. I, I work hard at my day job. If I'm going to do something on the side, it has to be something I really enjoy. Right. I'm not going to do something else 
that is not enjoyable. And uh, I feel very lucky to have bumped into the editor uh, of a website called The Whiskey Wash. Um, he and I were uh, sitting at a whiskey bar in Portland back in 2019. And I am kind of a geek about my whiskey. Uh, so I had ordered three different Irish whiskeys and set them up to compare them side by side by side, as one does. And uh, it just turns out that this guy, and we were actually, the, it, it was summer and it was warm and the window was open. And so he was outside the window and I was inside, but it was sort of an open air situation. And he looked over and said, I have to ask, what are you drinking? And I told him I had three Irish whiskeys and we talked about it. And so then he ordered three Irish whiskeys and we sat there and talked and uh, after about an hour, he said, did you write for whiskey? I said, I'm not sure what that means, but maybe. Uh, and so since then, uh, I have been one of the reviewers on the staff at thewhiskeywash.com. Uh, it really is one of the bigger whiskey websites out there. Uh, and does they have a high volume of things. And I'm just one of many reviewers there, but I have a blast. I meet up with the editor once a month, and we talk whiskey, and he gives me another batch. Uh, I have to admit that the acting work has limited my time to do whiskey reviewing, but I try to do at least one or two a month still. Uh, he tries to give me more. He'll try to give me six or eight bottles, and I'm like, I just don't have time, you know. I Give me two. <laughs> give me two. That's it. That's all I have time for this month. <laughs> but it, I feel yeah. fortunate. It is, And whiskey is supremely interesting. Um, for me, it's way more interesting than beer or wine, what's going on in it, how you make it, the different grains you can taste in it. So I, I really enjoy geeking out about it and being given the opportunity to try things I couldn't buy at Oregon liquor stores that I, you know, from around the world and try different whiskeys. It's a lot of fun. It is a real art form when somebody decides they're going to put together a great whiskey and it, it goes to the, the barrel, the, the type of wood that's in the barrel and how it go, and how long it's there. And it, it really is an art form. Um, Absolutely. I can see why you get so involved with it. And ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to point this out. Scott Bernard Nelson has been our guest. He is the Associate Vice President for Strategic Communications. That must be hard to put on a business card. For Communications Chief Marketing Officer and for Linfield University, go to the website linfield.edu. And the reason that I really... Uh, was taken so much with you when the during the meeting that we had at uh, at Left Coast Comedy was that you are somebody of um, contemporary of mine more so, but you are had a, a career as a journalist, but you're continuing to push the boundaries of who you really are to become something great. And I encourage everybody: don't sit in your house and watch TV. Get out. Go learn some stuff. Go visit some people, be friendly, be open, and great things will happen for you. Just like just like sitting in a bar, uh, t testing whiskeys, and all of a sudden you're a reviewer of a major publication. Those things can happen for everybody, and so I'm just imploring you to do that. Um, and, and Scott, uh, we've just got, uh, oh gosh, you got about 30 seconds. you got 30 seconds to, to tell me anything you want me to tell No. I, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for saying that. You've been too kind. Uh, and, you know, what I try to do is just keep saying yes to opportunity, right? Things come along, and I'll, I'll give it a try. And, uh, you know, I think hopefully we have a little fun along the way. 
and make a difference in other people's lives. So thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime, uh, and we can talk about any, uh, any of these topics some more. Absolutely. And just remember, say yes, and also be kind to one another because each other's all we've got. We'll see you three on Kixie. Oh, 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 o